back to Finding the Center podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Camacho. And while this is a somewhat somber or solemn or serious occasion, because we'll be talking a little bit about impeachment and more so about the Iran developments, um, today being the morning after, I wanted to start off with at least some measure of good news. If you follow me on Twitter, at the Center Pod, you will see that I have officially released the platforms that the show is now on. That includes um, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, Spotify, Spreaker, Podcast Attic, and other pending additions to iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts, which is actually separate from Google Play Music. So please check out my pinned tweet and add the show on your preferred platform. If it provides an opportunity to leave feedback, hopefully you have a positive review that you could share. And beyond that, I want to make kind of a special request that not only do you share the show with friends and family and those who may be interested or may benefit from from hearing these views, but I would also ask that if you have an iTunes account, that you please go to iTunes specifically and leave a review Again, hopefully a positive one, because that has been, in my experience, the most effective way to get a new show featured on the iTunes podcast page as like new and upcoming or you know whatever the phrase is. And if this show in any way even reasonably reflects some shared views of being centrist, moderate or independent and ways to find solutions and in later episodes we'll we'll get to those solutions my hope is that you will leave those reviews to help push the show up towards the top of the rankings in some manner so other folks can see it and in turn my hope will be that i will always try to represent that mission as best i can so that's kind of my initial ask and thank you to those who have been inquiring about where the show would be available I have been diligent in trying to make sure that any requested platform was honored or researched or pursued, and I have done a decent job so far with a few more to come. Now, briefly on impeachment, my goal here is to just kind of wrap up a few things that have been going on. One is that I know that Mitch McConnell has come out saying that he has enough votes to proceed with the type of trial that he would want, which would most likely limit witnesses, which leaves me a little disappointed because it makes me wonder where where those somewhat self-proclaimed moderate or independent being willing to question or be a check on Trump. Folks like Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, I've heard Cory Gardner, At one time, I might have added Marco Rubio into that mix, but it makes me wonder what happened with these folks in the background. And some of them have been more willing to buck the party than others and to buck Trump in particular. Some kind of waffle and some are just based on their past. You might think they might do something different. Well, should that be the fact? that he has the votes to proceed as normal, to proceed with the trial of his choosing that was per McConnell in coordination and in lockstep with the Trump administration and the White House attorneys and so on and so forth. You know, I I actually question whether or not that's completely true or whether or not that's a political statement to push Nancy Pelosi 
to move the articles into the Senate because he's essentially saying there's going to be no compromise. I have the votes I need. You might as well send it over. So it kind of begs the question of what Pelosi should do. And honestly, I'm not sure. Personally, I'm not interested in seeing this carry out for an extended amount of time. And I would like to see somewhat of a reasonably fair trial. This is a political endeavor. It was political in the House. It's going to be political in the Senate. But that being said, it doesn't have to be so blindly partisan that no measure of fairness could be you know, pursued. And in particular, when Trump has said the House was a sham, I want to have a fair trial in the Senate. It begs the question, if you don't have anything to hide, and if you have witnesses that can back up your perfect call and exonerate you of any wrongdoing because they were there in the room, folks such as Pompeo and Mulvaney, National Security Advisor John Bolton, I would think that those folks would be front and center as soon as possible to put this to bed. So it raises some serious questions about why that's not the case. So the path forward, my hope would be that there would be a relatively fair, you know, likely favoring Republicans because they're in charge of the Senate right now, but something closer to a little fair that we'll see some witnesses and then we can move on. And if folks decide after seeing these witnesses, I'm with Trump, that they don't see it as impeachable, well, whatever the outcome is, then so be it. And this leads me to a conversation that I had um, regarding the impeachment process. And essentially, what the kind of counter argument was to my previous episode was, it's time to let it go. It's time to move on. And we know more or less the Senate is not really going to do anything. And you know, there's some truth to that. The, the dragging of the feet, it going on forever. I'm really not excited about the proposition of that either. However, there are some kind of counterpoints and some, some other important facts or positions that I take on impeachment that don't necessarily have anything to do with getting a specified outcome. I think he should be removed from office. I think he's proven that in multiple ways. But for me... Impeachment is more about the integrity of the process. It's about the separation of powers. And it's about being beholden to the Constitution. So when you have someone that has arguably been impeached by the House based on their actions, there should be an actual trial that has witnesses that can really try and get to the bottom of what happened or what didn't happen. And at this point, while I don't see 15 or more senators flipping on Trump, maybe if we see the testimony from Bolton, Mulvaney, Pompeo, and there might be a few others, maybe those facts would change some minds. And I'm still skeptical that it would, but it is possible. But as I mentioned, if everyone shows up and testifies, and the Senate, in my opinion, drops the ball, then so be it. And it would be unfortunate, in my view, that they didn't have the spine to stand up and at least ensure that Trump was held accountable to a process, to a fair process that includes some witnesses. And it's the fact that Trump thinks that he can just refuse to do it and say that's a witch hunt and say that it's a hoax or it's fake or, you know, choose your word. I find that to be dangerous. And it's not just because of the inherent danger that I think Trump presents to the country. 
although I will slightly contradict that in the second segment of this show, what does it mean for the next president, Republican or Democrat, independent? I don't really care what party you want to use. What does it mean when they put their interests in front of the national interests? What does it mean when they invite other countries to meddle into our election in some degree or another? What does it mean when they refuse to cooperate with an impeachment inquiry and potentially a fair Senate trial just across the board? Because the Constitution says the House has the sole power of impeachment. It doesn't say the House has the sole power of impeachment unless you don't feel like it or you don't like it or you think it's unfair. There will always be likely some reasonable questions and legal considerations around executive privilege and those types of things. And I understand that. But there's a difference between having those targeted concerns and making a completely blanket statement. And so I don't want to rehash the second episode, but those are my concerns with a president that feels that he is above a process, that feels he is not equal or accountable to at least one of the houses of Congress, if not both. And that when the Constitution, vaguely as it may be, still lays out where the power lies and how it should go down more or less, it doesn't bode well that a president feels that he or she does not have to submit to that, that does not feel beholden to that. This is something that is concerning for me and that it does not necessarily mean that I want witnesses because I want a certain outcome. I'm not sure that that's what's going to happen. I would like to see some witnesses talk about what they know, let that have the impact that it's going to have, and then let the vote fall where it may. My prediction would be it would not lead to removal, but at least a president would have been of any party. A president would have been held accountable to what were clearly, I would say, high crimes directly in opposition to U.S. national interests, really to support his own interests, and also putting at risk our sacred elections. So for me, the case for impeachment and going through a reasonable process, not one only Democrats want, but definitely not one only Republicans want. There could be, you know, a 60-40 balance of power between who wants what, and let's settle on that. But being lockstep with the administration, as Mitch McConnell has said, is not okay. I think future presidents need to know if you do something like this, there will be consequences. And that is the main reason that I feel like impeachment needs to be forward, forwarded and needs to be taken seriously. Whether or not the outcome is what I think it should be is not as important as there being a process to hold someone accountable when these types of things happen. So that is kind of wrapping up a conversation I had, clarifying my stance a little bit further and talking about the importance of it beyond just a predetermined or preferred out outcome of removal. And forgive me, I'm still getting over pneumonia. My voice at times goes in and out. But that's the part I want to talk about impeachment. I want to take a short break because when I come back, I want to focus on Iran's attacks in Iraq and the morning after what we've learned and what President Trump said today in his remarks for those of you that didn't see it. So stick with me. I'll be right back after this.
So by now, most of us, if not all of us, are very aware of some of the things that have been going on in Iran, in Iraq, with regards to the U.S. And I wanted to just take a very short kind of contextual break to give some background information that I've seen in multiple areas, and I'm pulling this one from BBC. So this year, Trump stepped up some pressure by applying even more sanctions, and then some things started happening as far as six oil tankers being sabotaged in the Gulf of Amman in May and June. Um, Washington accused Iran of being behind these attacks, and of course Iran denied. In July, Tehran started suspending some of its commitments to, to the nuclear deal because they weren't seeing the benefits um, after the sanctions were replaced on their country. And then late in December, there was an Iran-backed militia attack. Um, it was a rocket attack, and it killed an American contractor. So the Trump administration retaliated by bombing some bases associated with the militia within the countries of Iraq and Syria. And around 25 or so of their fighters were killed. These bombings sparked a backlash in Iraq, and the U.S. Embassy in the capital of Baghdad was attacked by crowds of protesters. President Trump and others essentially blamed Iran for orchestrating the attack and said that it would pay a big price. A number of days later, in January, General Qasim Soleimani was killed in a U.S. Jones strike at the Baghdad airport. Now, his role as a general, he controlled Iran's proxy forces across the Middle East. He was regarded as a terrorist by Americans, and I believe others, and was alleged to be responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American troops and was said to have been plotting imminent attacks. Now, I have some audio from President Trump in his remarks today and in his remarks following the airstrike against Soleimani that will be in the show notes. I'm not going to air them in their entirety, but you can go to the links. They are provided by the official White House YouTube channel. And you can see what Trump said after the airstrikes against Soleimani, and you can see what he said this morning, being January 8th, in regard to Iran's retaliatory measures, which I'm about to get to. After the strike on General Soleimani, Iran vowed revenge, and a few days later, it had not only abandoned its agreement to limit enrichment of uranium for its nuclear ambitions, but that there was also going to be an attack or some type of retaliation against the U.S., likely against military structures or assets. So now moving forward a few days, we all saw the missile attacks on the U.S. bases in Iraq following the killing of General Soleimani. Now I've kind of talked about the series of events, the killing of the contractor, the attack on the embassy after we retaliated. So there has been a lot leading up to this. These things just didn't kind of happen in a vacuum. I had a lot of concerns last night. What was going to happen after hearing the news of, first I heard 30, uh, it seems to have settled on 15, rockets or missiles were fired at military installations where U.S. personnel were stationed. It was something that was very concerning to me because of my mistrust of Donald Trump's decision-making process and how he views world affairs, what he thinks being strong means. And until we had 
an accurate accounting the following day, which was today, about whether or not there were any casualties on the American side, on the Iraqi side, um, what type of damage was done, um, what type of attacks were they? I mean, was it like a chemical attack? Was it just a regular munitions attack? I guess there's a range of different attacks that would that would actually lead to different outcomes, different types of responses. Was a senior military or diplomatic official targeted in this attack that would only ratchet up the tensions and instead of de-escalate, escalate further? So I wanted to wait and see what it was that Trump was going to say. Now, another area of concern is when we look back at the reasoning behind the attacks in the first place, particularly against General Soleimani. One of my initial concerns centered around Trump wanting to appear strong in that response to the embassy attack was that I was concerned that he was going to see it as another Benghazi or a Benghazi type of incident that happened on his watch. Now, the Benghazi incident and the Baghdad incident are not the same. They're different. But it's easier for the casual observer who isn't really so deeply getting into the weeds that, hey, one diplomatic facility was attacked, led to American deaths. Here goes another one that's attacked. Could have been some American deaths. You know, thank goodness there weren't. But there is a difference. My hope is that the targeted killing of General Soleimani was not with the intention of not looking weak on the Baghdad embassy attack. The Trump administration has said that's not the case. And I would like to believe that with his history. I'm not necessarily inclined to just believe it right away. And so I think we need more on this. Now, as it pertains to the attack against Soleimani, I'm also concerned that the Gang of Eight in Congress, you know, the major congressional leaders on both sides, were not notified about the attack. And there have been some comparisons made that, well, you know, the Bin Laden raid also did not come with a lot of warning. But to me, there's one pretty large difference. First, it was well understood that Bin Laden was a target of American aggression and that he would be captured or killed as soon as possible. As soon as he was found, they were going for him. And I don't think there was any misunderstanding about that, no ambiguity. And actually, beyond that, I think that was the expectation. If you were to ask Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer or George W. Bush or any damn person you want, that would have been the expectation. But beyond that, most people would think we needed to get Bin Laden. So I can see why if he's found, we need to hurry up and do that before he's, he leaves or something. And it's already kind of assumed that Congress in general, the Gang of Eight, and everyone else involved is going to be okay with it. However, with Bin Laden being, you know, one of the top terrorists, if not the, that we were seeking in order to capture and or kill, Soleimani was different, even though he was also seen as a terrorist. If the reporting I've seen so far is correct, not just by the United States, but by the UN, and perhaps other countries. Of course, by default, UN includes other countries, but there might have been, you know, countries individually also making that determination outside of what they may or may not have said in the UN. And again, I apologize for my voice and the, and the recovery from pneumonia here. But Soleimani was different because he was a high-ranking government official. You know, he had an official role and had been tracked. Um, his whereabouts had been tracked for some time. 
and they were known. And I will also have some information regarding that in the show notes, as I always do. And so the question that I have is why now? When we know where he is and we had been tracking him and throughout the years, I'm sure there were many opportunities to have such a strike. Why would that not have been done up until now? And what was the actual rationale in doing it now? Because this was not a bin Laden type pursuit of Soleimani. Once we found out where bin Laden was, he had to go. There was plenty of opportunity to do the same thing with Soleimani, and it never happened. So that leads me to believe that there was plenty of opportunity, or it leaves the potential for plenty of opportunity to alert congressional leadership of Soleimani's targeting. Because this wasn't a, we got him, we need to hurry up and do it. We have already known where he was. There is a flip side to that. And that is, as the Trump administration has said, if there were in fact imminent attacks that required his quick targeting, then that would absolve Trump and the administration of any questionable actions. You know, I kind of alluded to, was he trying to be, you know, a tough guy and not have another Benghazi? Well, if these imminent attacks were real, then that takes a lot of that concern off of the table. But the next step to really make sure that we do address this in a way that puts that to bed is that Trump needed to speak to the American people about those attacks, about the potential for loss of life, about how severe they were, how widespread they were, all of the variables that go into it that would justify the rationale of not only having the airstrike to take him out, because that has its own unintended consequences, but in doing so without advising Congress, without having that briefing to say, here's what we're about to do and why, here's the attacks, just so you guys know, it's about to be really bad, and this is why we're doing it as compared to the past. That has not been provided, and it should be provided to the largest extent possible without giving up intelligence sources and methods, of course, because then that puts our intelligence you know, service members across the globe in jeopardy. And sources that we may have that are within other governments or other organizations in other countries, it puts their lives at danger. And that's also should not be something that we are trying to make happen, that, that we are willing to give up to make a case. But there has always been a way to say, here's what we know without really jeopardizing, I would say for the most part, the safety of our sources and methods. So all of that leads me to Trump's remarks today. So he didn't talk last night after the airstrikes happened, and he provided remarks today. Now, while I remain concerned and unsure of the original intentions, motivations, rationale, and urgency of the Soleimani attack, because perhaps what he was doing didn't necessarily warrant that he be taken off the board, so to speak. But because of the lack of information, it leaves and begs too many questions. And Trump's remarks today didn't really address that. My initial reaction to hearing that there were no casualties that were reported, American or otherwise, and that there was also minimal damage to the installations that were um, fired upon, it gave me the immediate response that Iran may have purposely targeted uninhabited structures or parts of the installations as to avoid any further casualties or escalations on the part of the U.S. And there were also reports of Iran alerting Iraq 
of potential military installation attacks in the coming hours. And I don't remember quite the time frame, but reporting on either ABC or NBC pointed to that there was some form of warning. And this would kind of be consistent with what happened when the U.S. alerted Russia of some missile strikes that they committed against Syrian assets. And they did this alerting of Russia as a measure to ensure de-escalation with Russia and kind of de-confliction out of our respected armed forces. Hey, this thing's going to happen. You're probably going to want to get your folks out of there. I think one of the unintended consequences because of Russia's support for Syria is that they also passed the word to Syria. In that case, may have been the same case of Iraq passing the word to Americans. And in Trump's remarks today, he makes a kind of a vague reference to early warning systems. And sure, those could be kind of technological military early warning systems, but it also also could be a diplomatic process, a system of communication to help ensure that we were warned when they were warned by Iran, if that is in fact what happened. So if that is what happened, it appears to me that Iran's attacks were more about displaying as a domestic political showing of force and as a retaliation and revenge for what seems to be an arguably beloved figure in Iran. Now it's unknown if that's the case, but it does support what appears to be a more measured response by Trump in his remarks on the issue. I think if it seems pretty obvious or the word, you know, through a back channel or whatever got out that, okay, they fired some rockets because we took out one of their main guys and they didn't really hit anything that matters to us. We didn't lose anyone. The Iraqis didn't lose anyone. So maybe we don't need to necessarily escalate this. Let's let them shoot at nothing and let's kind of simmer this down. And Trump's remarks today seem consistent with something along that nature. I don't have any inside information that that's true, but it does make sense in the way that some of these things play out over time and that Iran needed to show some type of strong response by shooting, you know, 15 or more rockets at bases where U.S. military, you know, installations and personnel were stationed. I mean, it makes sense that they're showing their people Here's what they did. Now here's what we're doing. We're being strong. We're protecting our assets. We're, you know, upholding our dignity, all those types of things. So Trump's remarks today seem to support this theory that I'm kind of putting out there that has led to him taking a more measured stance. And so because of that, I don't really see any future or imminent retaliatory actions to be taken by either side. I know that Trump said that in his remarks today, options are going to be on the table about what we should do about this, something along that line. Again, those full remarks will be linked in the show notes. But the choice of words that he had were uncharacteristically measured, diplomatic, and I would say strategically sound when you're looking at a bigger picture. Now, there was another thing that happened with an airplane going down in Tehran, and I'm hoping there was no foul play involved because of a horrible tragedy. But as of this morning on January 8th, I've seen no other information confirming the cause of the crash 
and the horrible loss of life as being confirmed as some type of retaliatory action. And so I'm hoping for the best here. Now, to the remarks, there are some exceptions I take with Trump's characterization of the Iran deal, some of the steps that led up to the series of events that he hasn't really substantiated. But that being said, I have to give Trump credit where credit is due. So here are what I found to be some important excerpts of today's remarks by Trump regarding the aftermath of the Iranian missile attacks in Iraq. And first, I want to start with Trump recapping the day after and kind of the damage assessment. The American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost because of the precautions taken, the dispersal of forces, and an early warning system that worked very well. I salute the incredible skill and courage of America's men and women in uniform. Now, what I found valuable and appreciated in the opening remarks is that Trump did a good job of ensuring that the American people understood the limitations of the damage assessment. And not only that, but by recognizing Iran seemed to be on a path of de-escalation or a ceasefire, so to speak, and understanding through his remarks the importance of that to the world and how that's good for everyone in a greater geopolitical and strategic sense. Trump does not always come off as that way. And so I was very, very assured by this part of his remarks and really appreciated him and was a place that I believe that he deserved credit. Now, here is the next part of his remarks in which he talks about some background on General Soleimani. We will never let that happen. Last week, we took decisive action to stop a ruthless terrorist from threatening American lives. At my direction, the United States military eliminated the world's top terrorist, Qasem Soleimani. As the head of the Quds Force, Soleimani was personally responsible for some of the absolutely worst atrocities. He trained terrorist armies, including Hezbollah, launching terrorist strikes against civilian targets. He fueled bloody civil wars all across the region. He viciously wounded and murdered thousands of U.S. troops, including the planting of roadside bombs that maim and dismember their victims. Soleimani directed the recent attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq that badly wounded four service members and killed one American, and he orchestrated the violent assault on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. In recent days, he was planning new attacks on American targets 
but we stopped him. Soleimani's hands were drenched in both American and Iranian blood. He should have been terminated long ago. By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. So here you just heard Trump kind of recap the airstrike against Soleimani, but doesn't really do a very good job of explaining the rationale and the urgency and imminence of the attacks and therefore the actions taken against him. Rather, he did a rundown of his very horrible, I admit, very horrible actions and crimes against U.S. troops and allies and those around the world. But if those that he just did a rundown of were enough to justify an airstrike against him, so be it. But that was never the case that was being made. He was being tracked. No action was being taken against him. And I don't recall a lot of talk in either party about this being someone that needs to be, quote, taken off the board as soon as possible. So really, the justification for everything still remains unclear. Now, on the end, he mentions evaluating, you know, possible moves, hinting towards, you know, maybe a response or retaliation. But notably, he did not promise retaliation. And that's important here. In one aspect, you want to say, you know, options are on the table. But if you were being driven by the need for revenge or retaliation, it wouldn't be ambiguous that we're evaluating. There would be the statement of some of your 52 cultural and other military sites are now in danger of being attacked in response. So the fact that we didn't hear that, that this is a de-escalation of previous rhetoric, I think is a good thing. And the imposition of sanctions is a rational response to dealing with Iran. And for this, Trump deserves credit. I now want to move on to his comments about NATO and the international community. And here's what he said. They must now break away from the remnants of the Iran deal, or JCPOA. And we must all work together toward making a deal with Iran that makes the world a safer and more peaceful place. We must also make a deal that allows Iran to thrive and prosper and take advantage of its enormous untapped potential. Iran can be a great country. Peace and stability cannot prevail in the Middle East as long as Iran continues to foment violence, unrest, hatred, and war. The civilized world must send a clear and unified message to the Iranian regime. Your campaign of terror, murder, mayhem will not be tolerated any longer. It will not be allowed to go forward. Today, I am going to ask NATO to become much more involved in the Middle East process. Here is another aspect of Trump's remarks that kind of surprised me and didn't. And he essentially is calling on others in the international community to be more intimately involved 
or more invested in the overall goal of peace and stability in the Middle East. That's been a long-time goal across multiple administrations, across decades, centuries, you name it. But what was interesting to me was not only was it kind of talking about international partners, regional partners, kind of in general, I think was inferred, but also he mentions NATO by name, which is good, but also a little strange considering his consistent and earlier jabs and attacks against NATO partners, just kind of the whole tending to those relationships. I was not expecting him to call upon NATO. I do agree that it is a good call to make. And his remarks about peace and prosperity for Iran are also kind of hopeful and optimistic and is what you would expect from a president. It's what we've heard from presidents in the past and is something that I also found comforting. However, there is the concern that they also seem to mirror some of the rhetoric that Trump used to try and entice Kim Jong-un in North Korea to drop its nuclear program for the promise of a bustling economy, beachside property and resorts, and, and really transforming it into a giant market-based economic powerhouse. So that hasn't panned out yet for North Korea. And on the whole, even with some of these kind of questions about it, I give him credit for these portions of his remarks as well. And then the last that I want to present were his messages for the Iranian people and its leadership. And here's what he had to say. ISIS is a natural enemy of Iran. The destruction of ISIS is good for Iran. And we should work together on this and other shared priorities. Finally, to the people and leaders of Iran, we want you to have a future and a great future, one that you deserve, one of prosperity at home and harmony with the nations of the world. The United States is ready to embrace peace with all who seek it. I want to thank you and God bless America. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. In the closing of his remarks, Trump goes out of his way to address the Iranian people and its leadership. And while it was somewhat of a callback to his previous remarks about North Korea and harmony and peace and all that, it also was a call to having better relations around the world, more global stability, and trying to find a way to work together to address common threats. And it was something that I found, and this is not a word that I use to describe Trump very often, as presidential. Trump deserves credit for doing something that I did not anticipate him to do. I didn't anticipate that he would not talk about fire and fury. I didn't think that he would revisit talking about bombing cultural sites and doing other things. And this was almost, in many ways, a full 360 of that. And I appreciated that, and I wanted to make sure that other folks understood that there was value in his remarks today and that we should pull comfort from how he has handled this on the whole. Now, as always, as I have said in each episode, I like to recommend a fellow Twitterer or a podcast. And today I'm actually going to do both. And one of the things I'm going to do is recommend a verified account, which I don't always do and then a separate podcast that is not hosted by that person. So for the individual, my recommendation is that if you are not following him, you should be following Matt Dowd. 
You can find him on Twitter under at Matthew J. Dowd. He is a former Republican turned independent, and it was essentially based on his disappointments, disagreement on strategy and misgivings with the Republican Party following up on its goals of working in a more bipartisan fashion to kind of get things done for the country in which he was serving as an advisor during the Bush 43 administration. And I only learned that by listening to a very old, I don't know, a couple years old episode of The Axe Files, a podcast by David Axelrod. Not my recommendation for today, will be for another day. But that's when I heard more of the story about how he found his way to the center. And that kind of resonated with me. So without even knowing that, I had already been a longtime follower of his. And luckily, I feel privileged enough to say that he follows me. And honestly, is that he's been a very inspirational figure for me in the value of American political discourse and to how I go about doing it. And not just his political contributions, but also through his kind of open embracing of the expression of his own humanity and of his religious beliefs and what I see as his genuine care and love for others. But what I appreciate is that I see the integrity that he carries with his faith and I see how he tries to carry that throughout his life in a way that is more beneficial to others and to himself and to the country when you, if you want to really take it up to a macro level. And that's something that our country does not have very much of. So if you're not following him, I strongly suggest you do so. And as the chief political correspondent, I'm hoping I got the title title right for ABC News and even his occasional sense of humor. You know, I find him to be refreshing and absolutely worth the follow. So thank you, Matt, if you hear this, for what you've meant and been to me. And I hope to see you with a podcast or program of your own in the very near future because you're truly an underrated voice in American politics today, and you're something that we sorely need. So moving on from that, the podcast that I wanted to give a tip of the hat to is a lawfare production called The Report. Now, this is a podcast that is hosted by Susan Hennessy, who is a part of the lawfare blog family, and the podcast has featured many appearances of others discussing the Mueller report, including its editor-in-chief, hopefully I got that title right, Benjamin Wittes. And while I know that this is a somewhat rehashing of the past, and many people are not interested in that, it is also one of the best resources that I had come across that really helped explain and contextualize the Mueller report, the highlighting of facts, and the mis- and disinformation from Trump and his allies all along the way. And it even offers some criticisms of Mueller by some of its guests that it interviews. They have legal experts and some political folks. And so for those of you that never really got a handle on the report because it was a behemoth and in its entirety, who has a lot of time for that? This show really breaks it down kind of section by section, usually chronologically, in a way that makes it easier for the casual observer of politics to understand. I really can't say enough about the show, so please check the podcast out. It's most likely everywhere. And while they're no longer producing new episodes, the last ones were sometime in November, these past episodes are very informative because the information is timeless. The interpretation and the presentation and the dialogue around the Mueller report 
while being mostly fact-centered and at times they're very clear about when they're paraphrasing and when they're not, just comes off as very credible. I'm very comfortable with it as a resource. And I think that in those times when you're driving in the car or doing whatever you're doing, cleaning up the house, throw this podcast on in the background and get a better understanding of some of the things that happen as it pertains to Russian collusion or coordination and as it pertains to obstruction of justice, which both are very concerning. Obstruction of justice really seems to be more substantiated in law and should have possibly had more repercussions. But if you want to understand how I've come to that conclusion, other than through other readings, it would be through this podcast. So I guess to wrap things up, I want to thank you all for tuning in to this third episode. Again, I'm your host, Joseph Camacho, and you can find me on Twitter at jcamacho510, and I'll spell it J-C-A-M-A-C-H-O-510. You can find the show on Twitter at The Center Pod. And you can email questions and comments and dissent and, you know, you can come for me. And that's findingthecenterpod at gmail.com. And lastly, I'm just introducing this. I've hardly posted it onto social media. You can leave voicemails for the show. And the phone number you would call to do that is 510-210-3993. And I encourage you, if, if Twitter is not your thing, if emailing is not your thing, but you still have some questions or things you'd like to know about, highly encourage you to give a call, leave a voicemail, and pretty decent chance that you'll hear your question aired on the show with a response by me. So I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you all, the feedback that I've been receiving, both telling me, hey, great job, keep it up. Here's some ideas, maybe try this. I just want to thank all of you for all of that interaction. Again, I implore you to not only subscribe on your preferred platform, but to consider going to iTunes, subscribing, and leaving, hopefully, a positive response to help move this podcast up into the realm of others so that these views, as I said, should they reflect yours in any reasonable manner, will be presented to others, will be exposed, and hopefully we can clear up some of the misperceptions about what it is to be a centrist, a moderate, an independent, to help us find our own pathway and to help others find their way to understanding what it means to find the center. So with that, as always, take care of yourselves and each other. See you next time.